Welcome to episode 50 of the Underground Christian Podcast, where the Bible and the 21st century collide head-on in a spectacular display of shock and awe. It's been a while since I last posted one of these episodes because I've been away, but I'm back now, and there's a lot that's taken place in the past few weeks. We're at war, and the war is being carried out simultaneously on two distinct fronts. The first is a physical, material war, and the second is a spiritual, immaterial one. We've been focusing primarily on the physical side of the war because that's the one that's most easily perceived and the one that obviously affects us the most. But we also need to look at the other side of the war, the spiritual side, because it's affecting the physical side. They work together in tandem, catalyzing each other. Last episode, we identified four ranks of spiritual authority in Colossians 1.16. They were from highest to lowest, Thronos, Kuriates, Arche, and Exousia. In Ephesians 6.12, Paul encouraged us to battle two levels of spirits with the full armor of God. The English translate these spirit categories as rulers and powers, but in the Greek, they are the two lower levels, Arche and Exousia. In Colossians 2.15, after Christ died on the cross, he disarmed two levels of spirits and made a display of them. In the English translation, again, these two levels are translated rulers and authorities, but they are the same two lower category terms, Arche and Exousia. So the Bible is telling us that after donning the full armor of God, Christians have been given the authority to engage the two lower levels of spiritual beings. So what kind of beings are these and how do we battle them? Well, first of all, they're intelligent beings who operate within the context of an orderly power hierarchy, just like their human counterparts do. These four categories can be likened to the following military authority levels from most authority to least authority. General officers, commissioned officers, non-commissioned officers, and enlisted. So we are authorized to engage the lower two classes of spiritual powers, which are the enlisted and non-commissioned equivalents. Just like in the military, these two classes or ranks of spirits make up the vast majority of the entities. Scripture does not authorize or encourage us to engage curiates or thronos spirits. In fact, There is another section of scripture where Jesus supports this limitation on which spirits we are permitted to engage. It's found in Matthew 17.21 and Mark 9.29. In these two passages, the disciples complained to Jesus that there were some spirits who would not obey their commands to come out, even after Jesus gave them the authority to cast out spirits. Jesus replied that those kind of spirits can only be forced to come out through prayer and fasting. Catholic exorcist Malachi Martin, in his book Hostage to the Devil, notes that there are certain possessed people in which exorcism is not possible. He called them the perfectly possessed, meaning there was no weakness through which an exorcist could leverage an advantage. He advised exorcists never to try to exorcise this kind of person as it could be exceptionally hazardous to the exorcist and possibly fatal. Note that I am not advocating the practice of Catholic exorcism rites. I use this example merely to illustrate that there are classes of spirits that we should not confront spiritually. And why is it that we have not been given the authority to confront this level of spiritual power, you might ask? Well, it seems to be because the right to confront these powerful angels is reserved to God and his angels, who are greater in power and might than we are, according to 2 Peter 2.11. This is why Jesus prescribed prayer and fasting as the means by which to confront them. Prayer is a direct plea for God to intervene directly, and fasting seems to be a requirement before we can, or should, appeal to God to do something. He wants us to make a small sacrifice of our own so we can learn to practice a kind of spiritual exchange or trade. 
The idea seems to be if it is important enough for us to ask God to do something for us or through us, then we should be willing to offer a little bit of our time and comfort in exchange. So barring direct intervention by God, our targets are the enlisted spirits and their NCOs. In other words, we are to engage in battle at the level of field combat. I'm going to stick to military terminology because we're at war, and wars are waged by military forces. As we get closer and closer to the end-time events, we should expect the world to become more and more embroiled in all kinds of warfare. In Matthew 24, Jesus said the early stages of this period would be characterized by wars and rumors of wars, followed by worldwide ethnic and national wars. Later on, the coming Antichrist will be a man of war who worships a god of war in an age of war, so the days of peaceful governmental diplomacy are drawing to a close. In this environment, Christians need spiritual armor because we are the ones who have been tasked with doing the hand-to-hand fighting on the spiritual side of the battle, but not the physical side. God did not ordain us to fight physical wars. Let's bring this idea down to the events of today. On Team Evil, Satan's team, the lowest level spirits encourage the human beings they are associated with to focus on their feelings at the expense of their reason. And the reason they do this is because feelings, which the Bible calls our heart, are the primary means by which most people assess morality and truth and justice. The reason that spirits want us to experience the world through our feelings is because feelings are also the most easily manipulated and corrupted part of our being. They are regularly manipulated through media productions, news reporting, educational programs, and the entertainment industry to encourage us to explore our sensual emotions at the expense of reasoned analysis. Satan's spiritual forces control people by manipulating their heartfelt emotions. Many people can be controlled just through the content of media, education, and entertainment, but some people open themselves to even more direct control by exposing their spirit and soul directly to demonic spirits. In those cases, the demon is like a spiritual parasite that feeds on negative and hurtful emotional states, or heart states, of its victim. Permitting demons to have access to our spirits, souls, and bodies allows them to infect the thoughts that enter our minds, thoughts which directly influence the emotions of our hearts. So these are the two primary means by which Satan controls his human subjects, physical manipulation of environmental stimuli and spiritual manipulation of our thoughts both of which are designed to pervert and corrupt our heart. In spiritual warfare, the primary mechanism of control is physical manipulation of environmental stimuli. The demons seek to control those things around us that prod our emotional state more than they tweak our intellectual curiosity. The demons are so good at it that they only need to possess a few people to keep the program engaged and effective. Possessed individuals are most likely to be influential and powerful people because they are the ones who are best able to physically manipulate environmental stimuli. Examples include movie and television producers, music stars, business and technology moguls, pornographers, athletes, government authorities, and even creative educators. What does that tell us? It should tell us that our primary targets of resistance are those things that stimulate our sensual emotions and thoughts because everyone is confronted and challenged by these stimulations throughout their lifetimes. We don't need to focus on spiritual possessions and oppressions most of the time, because most people are not possessed or oppressed by spirits. Oppression and possession are always associated with people who invite the infestation, either intentionally by practicing witchcraft or Satanism, 
or unintentionally by exposing themselves to the occult or being exposed to it by others, and these people are rarely Christians. The vast majority of those who expose themselves to spiritual infestation attract only the low-level spirits whose job it is to trick their victims into promoting the same kind of problems that got them involved with spiritual infestation, or if they won't go along with that program, then get them to do as much damage to themselves and others around them as possible. Cutting, alcohol and drug addiction, and suicide are favorite venues to get them to harm themselves, along with transgender mutilations, and then things like murder for hurting other people around them. Higher-level spirits, on the other hand, are the ones who seek victims that have access to large numbers of people in order to spread their lies and manipulations to a large and diverse audience. They want entertainers and persons who hold positions of power and influence, and they're willing to work with those people to enhance their physical and intellectual abilities just so they can gain access to the large numbers of people or powerful organizations that they are members of. The very highest category of spirit, Thronos, are few in number and are associated with powerful political leaders on Earth, whether they are declared political leaders or hidden ones. So, if our primary job is to resist the physical manifestations of spiritual influence and not confront actual spirits most of the time, why do we need spiritual armor? We need it so that we can be protected from the influence operations in this area of spiritual warfare. It's also to provide us with the courage we need to confront the peddlers of these influence operations in our homes and communities. Let's take an example of something we all take for granted. Politics. The truth is that nothing in politics is truly driven by humans. Everything is planned and orchestrated at the spiritual level before it's implemented on the physical level. We think things are planned and controlled by human beings, but that's only because we can't see the hidden spiritual operations that are taking place. We might analogize the spiritual war to a chess match, with Satan on one side and God on the other. Satan makes a move, and God counters. God makes a move, and Satan counters. To those of us who don't understand the intricacies of chess, each move probably appears kind of random. If the chess pieces were animated and moved themselves around, we might think that the pieces themselves were making the decisions. Once the match is underway, at times one side appears to get lucky and take a piece and sometimes the other side gets lucky and takes a piece. It's all very mysterious to most casual chess observers, but for those who understand what is going on both strategically and tactically, the moves and counter-moves make logical sense. Although chess is complex, life is far more complex with an almost unlimited number of options and countless possible outcomes. Yet God is the better player at life, and he always knows how to counter the best efforts of Satan. Satan may take the occasional piece and may even appear to have an advantage in the game, but God knows the end from the beginning. He knows every move that could be made and therefore has unlimited responses that can counter any perceived advantage of Satan. But like in chess, sometimes setting up the trap takes some time. Meanwhile, Satan is trying to set up his own trap. Very soon now, he is going to reveal his greatest gambit one that will look for a time like he is beating God and on the brink of winning. This is why God spent so much time having his prophets assure his team members that he will be victorious in the end, even though his victory will occur as through a fire, which means through great pain and suffering. Belief in the ultimate victory of God is a test of faith that we are to have in both God and Jesus Christ. Faith comes easily in the good times, but when the times get unpleasant and dangerous, it's only with great difficulty and perseverance that we may maintain it.
when looking at the politics of the world, we can see the moves in this divine chess game being played out. The final state in the game, the victory, is when Jesus rules over the earth for all eternity. That final victory cannot come, however, until the Antichrist comes to power and rules for seven long years. Prophetically, we will not know for sure who he is until the three-and-a-half-year point of his seven-year reign when he sits in the Jewish temple of God, declaring that he is God. That is when we will know for sure who he is. But for him to do that, there first must be a Jewish temple. There isn't one currently, but Jews in Israel have detailed plans to build one, and soon. They've secured the money. They have access to the resources. They have developed the architectural drawings. They have made the holy implements and vessels and elements and vestments for the temple. They have retained the priests and even obtained a sacrificial red heifer. They have the means and the equipment and the materials to build the temple. All they lack is a political situation that will allow it. Many people believe that the Antichrist will facilitate construction of the temple at a time of great social and military chaos in and around Israel. He will mediate for them, which will make the Antichrist very popular in Israel, at least for a time. But before a Jewish temple could even be imagined, there first had to be a resurrection of the nation of Israel. Not very long ago, historically, that seemed to be nothing more than a pipe dream because the Islamic Arabs held the territory and they had held it for hundreds of years. There was no conceivable way the people of Satan's religion would allow a Jewish state to be resurrected, much less a temple to be constructed in that city, which is why they built a mosque right on top of the temple location. It is insurance against a resurrected Israel. So they thought that the possibility of having a national resurrected Israel was nothing but a laughable pipe dream. But just after World War II, the pipe dream became the nation of Israel through self-proclaimed independence from the Arab nations, enraging the Islamic nations around it and triggering a holy war against Israel. The Arabs immediately attacked Israel with overwhelming force, but in what can only be described as a divine miracle, Israel fought off and defeated their enemies, securing more land area in the process. Yet Israel did not control Jerusalem, the place where the temple must be built. It took the Six-Day War in 1967 for Israel to take control of that city. It still does not control the Temple Mount, which is controlled by Jordan, so something else has to take place to allow the temple to be constructed. But the miracle of Israel goes back even farther, showing the spiritual hand that guides the political realities of the nations. For Israel to become a nation, three things had to first happen. The Jews had to be drawn back to the land area of ancient Israel. Once there, they would have to want to recreate a nation, something that a lot of Jews today still don't support. And finally, the world powers would have to recognize them as a nation. Preparation for the first event began in the mid-19th century when a Jewish movement was formed to reestablish a presence in the Middle East by purchasing property from the Arabs who owned it. Israel had become mostly uninhabited except for the occasional Bedouin family moving through it, as foretold by Isaiah the prophet in Isaiah 6, where it reads, Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. The Jews did not learn from their adversary after the first diaspora, after they were removed from the land by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. 
They rejected their Messiah who would have healed them, and as a result, there was a second diaspora, an even more severe diaspora than the first, as forewarned by Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah 44, where it reads, So the Lord could no longer bear it because of the evil of your doings and because of the abominations which you committed. Therefore, your land is a desolation, an astonishment, a curse, and without an inhabitant as it is this day. When the Jews first went back in the 19th century, they found it just as Isaiah and Jeremiah had prophesied, a wasteland without an inhabitant. The land was a unique combination of desolate, arid wasteland and insect-infested swamps. The Arabs who owned the land didn't live there, but they lived in other countries that were far more prosperous. Because the Jews had been for so long considered little more than chattel by the Arabs, they sold the land to the Jewish settlers for exorbitant amounts of money, far more than the land was believed to be worth. The Muslims who sold the land thought they were really sticking it to the Jews by extracting what amounted to tribute from them for the privilege of living in a wasteland that no one wanted. But the world wasn't ready for a new Israel in the early part of the 20th century because anti-Semitism was still prevalent around the world. It took the Second World War and the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis with their program to exterminate the Jews to soften the hearts of the people of the world just enough for them to make a place for the displaced Jews of the world. Until the world saw the horrors of the concentration camps in the ovens, the nations of the world were not ready for a new Israel. But with the advent of television screens and photographs in newspapers, a small window of opportunity arose. The newly formed United Nations argued about where the displaced Jews could go, with Muslim nations lobbying to put them in, in a desolate part of Africa or somewhere else, anywhere but in Arab Israel. Eventually, the UN settled on a partitioned area to segregate the Jews and the native Arabs who lived there. It was called UN Resolution 181. 33 nations voted in favor of it, and 13 voted against it, with all the Arab nations voting against it. Now, those are very two interesting numbers for those of you who have been following along in this series. The 33 is an important number to globalist satanic organizations, and 13 is a sacred number to just Satanists. But before the UN could formally ratify Resolution 181, Israel declared independence on May 14, 1948. Their declaration of independence was read by David Ben-Gurion, the executive head of the World Zionist Organization, chairman of the Jewish Agency for Palestine, and soon-to-be first prime minister of Israel. Eleven minutes after midnight the next day, the United States recognized the state of Israel. And that only happened because President Truman, for all his other faults, was raised by a mother who drummed into his head the importance of supporting the Jews in any way possible because God had said in Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. So despite great pressure from various members of his cabinet as well as members of the United States Congress, President Truman directed his UN representative to recognize the state of Israel before any other nation. And with that, the nation of Israel was created by Jews in one day and was recognized by the world on the same day, at least as days are reckoned in the Bible, which is sunup to sunup, as had been prophesied in Isaiah 66.8. So it took the rise of the Nazis in the Second World War to create the nation of Israel, but the Nazis and the Second World War could not have existed but for the First World War and the devastating punishment that had been imposed on Germany by the victors for siding with Austria-Hungary in that conflict. At the conclusion of World War I, 
The Treaty of Versailles imposed reparations on the German government for the costs of the First World War, which created severe economic hardships that led to political unrest, which facilitated the rise of the Nazi Party, which was the impetus to persecute the Jews enough to get the world to grant them a Jewish state. But World War I would not have happened except for a series of extremely unlikely actions that culminated in the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne. A young Bosnian Serb by the name of Gavrilo Princip was a revolutionary idealist who dreamed of freeing Bosnia from the political clutches of Austria-Hungary. To advance this dream, Princip joined a secret society called the Black Hand, which was dedicated to instigating a revolutionary movement to free the Bosnians from their perceived political oppressors. The Black Hand members received a lot of support from the Serbian intelligence service to create a plan to incite the public to revolution. The intelligence service did what all intelligence services do. They recruited and trained an assassin to target a key figure in the opposition government, in this case, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, to ostensibly create a crisis that would instigate the Serbian revolt. So the young, brash, 20-year-old princip was selected to train as an assassin. Equipped with nothing but a revolver, he set out to murder the political leader of the hated Austro-Hungarian Empire as he drove by the leader in a planned public event. For those who are unfamiliar with revolvers, they are small-caliber handguns that are accurate over a few yards for most people and maybe up to 50 feet for a very well-trained shooter, which young Princip does not appear to have been. Hitting a stationary target with a revolver is difficult enough, but trying to hit a small moving target is much more difficult. That's why handgun shootings by modern thugs often only hurt bystanders. The bullets fly everywhere but where the shooter intends them to fly. But for some reason it's still unclear to this day, the car in which Archduke Ferdinand rode stopped just five feet from young Princip, even though there was no reason for the car to stop, and there were many other places where the car could have stopped. But having stopped where it did, Princip took the opportunity to spray half a dozen bullets at point-blank range into the Archduke and his wife, eventually killing them both. And so, the first domino fell that would lead inevitably to World War I, which led to the defeat of Austria-Hungary and Germany, which led to the reparations of Germany, which led to severe economic problems for Germany, which led to the rise of the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler, which led to the Holocaust, which led to the creation of Israel. And we can keep going back in history to look at many supporting and equally interesting events that were necessary for this assassination to take place, but I hope it's clear by now that the events of man are not random. They are influenced or controlled by spirit entities who have longer-term plans than their human counterparts, plans that require certain preliminary events to take place. So my question is this. Which spiritual entity caused Princip to assassinate the Archduke, or was it just his human idea? Did a spirit infect his soul and influence his emotions to do such a thing? Did a spirit control the Serbian intelligence service leaders who trained and provisioned young Princip? Did a spirit infect the driver of the car that stopped five feet from the Archduke, giving Princip an opportunity to do what he could not otherwise accomplish? Did a spirit control the Archduke and lead him to take the fateful drive that day? Or did God arrange the chess pieces so that these events would take place even though he didn't direct the assassination himself? Or did God direct everything, including this evil act, because God controls everything? Well, I'll argue to my dying day that God does not control everything or he would inevitably be the creator of evil. What God does is influence the self-motivated, self-guided chess pieces so that they are in the right place, at the right time, with the right equipment, 
and the right motivation to carry out all on their own the right action that will lead inevitably to the outcome that is needed to advance the next phase of the plan. God is not the author of evil because he doesn't need to be. There is enough evil lurking about all on its own. But God, being the master of all things, sees billions of moves ahead so that he can subtly influence the evil motivations and intentions of his enemy to achieve, in the end, that which he set out to achieve, which is ultimately freedom from evil, pain, and death. But the path to get there goes through a lot of evil, pain, and suffering, and death, and even God does not get to escape those things, although he is God. So we followers of Christ have been tasked with confronting and opposing the lowest levels of all this evil, even though it may produce in us emotional trauma, physical pain, and maybe even our own death. Do you see why we have not been given authority to take on the most senior decision-making spirits? God needs them to be free to work their evil, because it is through their evil that he is working out all things for good but he needs us to confront the implementers of this evil so that there are more potential chess moves available to him. If evil were not confronted, then how would God operate for the good? Everything would work for evil continually, but when there is a mixture of good and evil operating at the field level, it's like mixing oil and water. They are distinct materials that can be mixed together and blended into all kinds of interesting patterns, but in the end, the oil and the water separate back into their component parts. It is this contrast in good and evil that God uses to create just the right mixture of actions to produce the outcome that he needs. But Peter, you object. The Bible says there is nothing good in man. He is nothing but a wretched, awful, sinful, walking corpse outside of Christ. I would reply that that belief is a religious philosophy that has been elevated to a supposed doctrine, but that's not exactly what the Bible says or teaches. The Bible makes it clear that there is good in man along with evil. When the Bible says that there is no one good, no, not one, the context is the absolute measure of goodness because in the absolute sense, none of us are pure and without flaw. The verse in question is usually cited as Romans 3, 10 to 12, but Romans 3 is a quotation of two Old Testament verses, the first being Psalm 14, verses 1 to 3, where it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. While the word none sounds all-inclusive for humanity, the actual context of this verse are the fools and their hearts. In the Bible, a fool is one who is opposed to God and his directions for how to live life. Foolishness is defined as that which does not follow God's laws and guidance. So the context is people who are against God, which means, by default, that they are on Satan's team. The second passage that discusses this theme is Psalm 53, verses 1 to 3. It starts out almost exactly the same way as Psalm 14. It says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt and have done abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. So it's the same idea. Now both passages go on to discuss the children of men, which could be interpreted to mean all people on earth, but it could also be interpreted in the context of the introductory statement to mean the children of these men, the men being those who oppose God. The lesson, I believe, is not that all human beings are wretched and awful and can't do any good ever. The lesson is not that everything human beings do is tainted with sin and therefore unacceptable before God. The lesson is that the people who are opposed to God cannot do anything good before God because the team they are on is inevitably working against him. 
But Peter, didn't Jesus himself say that there is no one good but God? Yes, he did. But again, that is a comparison with the perfect standard of goodness, which is God, and no one can measure up to that standard. It was also a way of reflecting on the irony of the statement that Jesus was a good teacher because Jesus actually is God, although no one knew it at the time. It's revealing that Jesus didn't deny being good. He simply asked the man who called him a good teacher why he calls him good if no one is good except God. So there is a difference between the context of perfection with respect to goodness and the context of which side you are working for. Yes, no one measures up to a holy, perfect standard, which is God, but everyone can choose a side to be on. Prior to the first century, the choice was between Judaism and Gentilism. There was no option for holy perfection in either case. Once Messiah Jesus arrived, the choice became one between the Church of Jesus and the Synagogue of Satan. There was still no option for holy perfection. We are not made perfect in Christ in the context that a holy God is perfect. As professing Christians, we are as sinful as ever. Any improvement in our moral character, if there is any improvement, is only to a degree. It is not an absolute improvement to perfection. We are made perfect in Christ only in the sense that our allegiance has now changed, our command structure is now different, so that our actions, imperfect as they continue to be, will advance the kingdom of Christ if we just follow the instructions of our leader. That is how God is going to work out all things for our good. The working out part is how God expertly induces us, draws us, and motivates us to pursue good so that we will do less evil for Satan. God allows team evil to continue to do those evil things that they want to do because he can use those things to unwittingly advance the kingdom of Christ. Just as the assassination of an obscure aristocrat ultimately led to the reestablishment of a Jewish state that is a necessary precursor to the end times, God can use the evil of man and the evil of spirit to advance his holy objectives. We are not allowed to mess with the spiritual big boys because they are the ones playing human chess against God and his angels, but we are allowed to mess with their spiritual foot soldiers And messing with them in the Christian context means separating them from their victims and depriving them of the fruits of their labors, or at least disrupting their activities enough to make their plans more difficult. So today, our attention is consumed with the imminent Israeli invasion of the Gaza Strip along the Mediterranean Sea, an invasion designed, apparently, to destroy Hamas. At the same time, Israel could possibly embroil itself in a simultaneous war with Hezbollah along the northern border with Lebanon. None of these events happened just because. All of these events are following a carefully laid plan involving not just the local people groups, but a plan involving the transformation of the whole earth. It is a transformation for evil to benefit Satan, and it's also a transformation for good to benefit Jesus. The transformation benefits both sides at the same time right now. Everything about this Middle Eastern situation is contrived, which means planned and controlled. One side calls Hamas cruel and vicious animals who need to be obliterated from the earth, and maybe even their Palestinian Arab supporters too. After all, Hamas stormed the Israeli border, raped women, killed men, killed women, killed children, cut off some heads, burned others, and took others captive. They deserve their fate. So the Israeli government plans to retaliate by destroying buildings, blowing up men, women, and children along with Hamas, shutting off the water so they die of thirst, shutting off electricity to deprive them of necessary modern utilities, stopping food from entering the territory so they can starve, 
and then threatening to wipe out anyone who is in the vicinity of Hamas when the Israeli Defense Forces come knocking. And then there are some people, including writers at the Jerusalem Post, who suspect that the Israeli government officials are the ones who are cruel, vicious animals, not only for their response to the invasion, but because they facilitated the invasion by looking the other way, ordering their military and police to stand down, and maybe even helping the Hamas animals commit their crimes. Now, I don't know if the Israeli government actually facilitated this tragedy, but it wouldn't shock me if they did. It would be just one more of countless false flag events that governments and their three-letter agencies around the world arrange to create an emotional atmosphere to overwhelm the public and induce them to follow whatever path their leaders choose, which is usually one of war and destruction and misery, not to mention gradual enslavement. Every event in this Israeli situation was orchestrated by forces in government, usually hidden ones, to bring about certain changes that some human beings thought would benefit them or their cause. When a government action is done in secret and blamed on another group, it is called a false flag event. Well-known false flag events that have recently occurred include the Boston bombing, the Las Vegas massacre, the Unabomber, and the second biggest false flag event in recent history, which is 911, 9-11. The biggest false flag event ever in human history is the coronavirus pandemic, followed by deployment of the bioweapon masquerading as a vaccine. On the political side, the January 11th so-called insurrection is hard to beat for a staged false flag event, unless you want to consider the Black Lives Don't Really Matter Very Much Summer of Rage riots of 2020 a multi-billion dollar burning and looting of America just so the left could give us a taste of what they would do if Trump were to win a second term. What all of these false flag events have in common is a coordinating agency or element of governmental authority that secretly plans and ignites the whole process just to carry out an agenda that cannot be accomplished otherwise. There are countless other examples of false flag events in America and around the world, and the Israeli situation may very well turn out to be just one more of these. Why would the Israeli security forces allow this massacre to happen, much less help orchestrate it? Because there will be wars and rumors of wars and ethnic wars and political wars that are needed in order to set the stage for the ultimate war, that of the Antichrist. The most powerful people on the earth work directly for Satan, and every government on earth works for these secretive people. That's why every government on earth forced the pandemic shots on their populations. The very few government leaders who refused were all assassinated. War is the word of the age because war serves several important functions in Satan's kingdom. It divides people into factions to make them more easily manipulated. It unifies some people to pursue an agenda that is desired by others. It enriches those who produce the war materials. It enriches those who profit off others' misfortunes during wartime. It enables governments to consolidate power they would not otherwise be able to consolidate. It enables governments to assume new powers they would not otherwise be able to assume. It glorifies those who wage war well, and it humiliates those who wage war badly. It reduces populations to make control of the remaining people easier. It stimulates egotism and pride in political and military elites. It enables countries and peoples and governments and agencies and secretive organizations and individuals to terrify and exploit those who are labeled enemies to steal their property, to murder their friends and families, and to commit all manner of evil, all in the name of goodness and justice and glory for the conqueror. 
As Christians, we fight our part of this war by discerning what is hidden by man and by exposing what man does not want to be brought to light, including the spiritual forces behind the people who are working overtime to bring the maximum amount of misery and control to the people of the earth. If you are standing in their way, you're doing your job as a Christian. But if you are going to stand in their way, you'd better first put on the full armor of God that minimizes the chance that you will quickly become spiritual, emotional, social, or physical roadkill. In the next episode, we will start to identify how our day-to-day -day world is intertwined with the spirit world of demons and fallen angels in a way that is going to inevitably lead to the rise of Antichrist. So get ready to be exposed to some very dark, very diabolical plans for our immediate future, including who is leading us into a trap that will capture us inside those plans if we allow it. And you might be surprised at the real purpose of the plan. If you found this podcast interesting, useful, or important, please recommend it to someone you know and punch that sign, symbol, or button to encourage others to listen. Underground Christian can be heard on several fine podcast platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, Pandora, Samsung Podcasts, Podchaser, and UndergroundChristian.net. If you wish to contact me, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. Lord God, please protect me and my valuable listeners from the wiles of Satan and his men, not to mention women, so we don't become roadkill as they plan our way to war. We pray against Satan and his army, and we pray that the army of Christ will rise to the occasion, exposing the fraud and deceit that are characteristic of the ways of the Dark Lord, turning those who will listen to the light of Christ and his word. Lead us this week out and away from any temptations that will weaken us spiritually and undermine our testimony. Forgive and heal those of us who have succumbed to trials and help us glorify your name and the name of King Jesus for your honor and the glory you have given him through the workings of the Holy Spirit. Amen.